0: American Timelines as a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com oh, okay. So now
1: I'm obsessed with time
0: of American American. Timelines. I'm Amy and that's Joe.
2: And we are history for jerks. We are jerks. You're a jerk. We're a jerk. We're all jerks. Everybody's a jerk really.
0: And we are the podcast that talks about the history of the timeline.
2: Yeah, we tell you about we go through the American timeline of history and tell you what happened in the news and in pop culture and Crazy UFO stories, whatever and, else
0: comes along. Yeah,
2: and with a little bent on true crime because Amy loves to go a deep dive into people dying and murdering, and I love when people are born. I love giving life, and she loves taking life, and so we celebrate. She's like death, know. and I'm like the angel of love.
0: I don't think that's yeah a- accurate. You're really. you're you're like, you're de- you're like the skeleton. All right, we are synth- going to talk scythe. about. 1959
2: yeah we are in april and may okay april 1st 1959 was a wednesday and the navajo nation supreme court came into existence along with a set of district courts with jurisdiction in navajo territory in arizona and new mexico okay did you know there was a navajo nation supreme court
0: no i did not
2: i didn't either um And on that same day, a U.S. Air Force cargo plane crashed at Orting, Washington, killing all four of the crew on board. Witnesses reported that the C-118 had collided with another object in midair, and the incident had become part of UFO lore.
0: Oh, they think it must crash into a UFO? uh,
2: Yeah, the pilot, Lieutenant Robert R. Dimmick, radioed, we have hit something, or something has hit us. Moments before the crash. Oh. And so it's never been. This is when I told you to look up. Yeah. You said you couldn't find anything, I guess. So maybe you have to take a deep dive or contact MUFON, maybe. So we'll leave that to you, the listeners, to contact MUFON. Because we got to move on to April 2nd, 1959, which is a Thursday, when a super bolt more powerful than an ordinary lightning bolt struck a cornfield near Leland, Illinois, leaving a crater one foot deep. And breaking windows on homes almost a mile away. Wow. Big crack of lightning. Wow. Why that one crack of lightning was yeah. kept in History and not any other ones. Yeah. Except I know Ben things. Franklin's. April fifth was a Sunday. And at the Southmore Hotel in Chicago, black nationalist S. A. Davis, chairman of the Joint Council of Repatriation, and eight of his associates met with George Lincoln Rockwell. You know who that was? No. A white supremacist. Oh. And two of his associates in the American Nazi Party. And so this is black nationalists and Nazis sitting down to discuss a joint resolution in support of government-supported repatriation of African Americans to a homeland on the African continent.
0: Oh. Um, Like Marcus Garvey kind of thing. Yeah,
2: like they were working together. Yeah. Like militant. Yeah, just weird. And... You can do research on this on a in a uh, in a book called Black Nationalism: A Search for an Identity in America by E. U. S. Udom. Mm. I kind of fell down a rabbit hole looking at, at it. it was I was just fascinated with the fact that they would sit down together. Right. They both are are I don't know. It's weird that Nazis would.
0: They they want them to leave too. Yeah, they
2: want them gone. So, but they also, if you look into it, this George Lincoln Rockwell was quoted as like. Yeah, separating, you know, like labeling all black people as, you know, lazy and dirty and awful Jewish people and all that. But he kind of talks about how these leaders are, you know, they stand out. and They're different than every other black person, you know, kind of using, of course, racial slurs. Yes. Uh, But it's just weird to think like how how hate works. You know, know. it can be there can be an exception here and there sometimes. I don't know. It's weird. Uh, It doesn't make any sense. Racism, really, when you think about it. It's all just.
0: Made up. Yeah, yeah, just. Social Putting things, yeah, yeah,
2: places where you want it to fit. Uh, April 6th, 1959 was a Monday. The Academy Awards ceremony took place at the RKO Pantages Theater in Hollywood. Yeah. Gigi won a record nine Oscars. Did you ever see that? I never did. Including the award for Best Picture. I I think I tried to watch it, Mm -hmm. and I, I was just.
0: I can't remember who's in that.
2: Leslie Karen? Oh, okay. Maurice Chevalier. Chevalier. Chevalier.
0: Maurice Chevalier. Louise
2: Louis Jordan.
0: I think <clears throat> Leslie Karen. So I knew so.
2: somebody named, uh, there was people in my school, middle school, called, their last name was Chevalier. Oh. It should have been Chevalier. Chevalier. Ava Gabor was in it. Oh, okay. Hermione Gingold. Jingold, Gingold. I
0: don't know that. Isabel one.
2: Jeans. Jacques
0: Bergerac. Okay, you can start now.
2: <laughs> Excuse me. I don't know. I can't clear my throat. You ever get that? Yes. Open? I hate I do. that. do. Anyway, that same day on April 6th, Texas A&M won its fight. Won its fight. Are you proud of Texas A&M University winning its fight?
0: Against what?
2: Against admitting women as students. No. And the U.S. Supreme Court dismissed You thought I was going to say. I thought you were. I was going to try to trick you. The U.S. Supreme Court dismissed an appeal by two women uh, from a state court decision. Dismissed it. Say, nope. They're allowed to keep women out.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah. Sorry,
2: babe. Hal Holbrook began his career portraying a retired author with his first performance of Mark Twain. Oh. Uh, Mark Twain Tonight at the 41st Street Theater in Manhattan. Okay. And then on April 7th, as we move through the timeline in Washington... The National Safety Council first warned parents about the risk of suffocation posed by plastic bags, mm-hmm. particularly those used by dry cleaners. Oh. The AMA, as well as a Trade Association of Dry Cleaning Stores, joined in the warning. Uh, in January, Dr. Paul B. Jarrett of Phoenix had begun a campaign to educate the public after five children had suffocated in the previous year.
0: That's terrifying. Isn't that awful? Yes.
2: Poor babies.
0: I know. Well, back then, you know, you, if you didn't know.
2: Yeah, if you're a little, I mean, little kids, right? Little, right. Yeah.
0: If you didn't know that plastic could, you know.
2: I remember being warned about that as a kid. Like, really warned. Like, yeah. oh, oh, you can suffocate, you could suffocate, you not put that plastic over your head. Yeah. You know, you always want to put a plastic bag over your
1: head.
0: Right.
2: That's fun. Uh, by a margin of... Three hundred eighty-six thousand eight hundred forty-five to three hundred fourteen thousand three hundred eighty voters in Oklahoma elected to repeal the state's constitutional prohibition on the sale of alcohol. Oh, leaving Mississippi as the only dry American state. Liquor sales began on September first, nineteen. It was
0: part of time.
2: <coughs> yeah, it was. Can you yeah. imagine living in a dry?
0: No state. I kind of. Well, yeah, I can. I can imagine it. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how it is for cannabis in yeah, our state. It's the same as cannabis, I guess. These mm-hmm. People still smoke it. Right. You can still, You're just, you not just not have to, to, to. Yeah, exactly.
2: You just have to cheat, lie, cheat, and steal. That's right. That same day, the town of Jackpot, Nevada was founded. Located just a few miles south of the border with Idaho, the gambling center was created after Idaho banned gambling. They made a town called oh. Jackpot. Jackpot, <laughs> Nevada. In your face. In your face, Idaho. Yep. And as dumb as I am, I didn't realize that Idaho and Nevada bordered each other.
0: Yeah, I don't know a lot about the West Coast geography. All the little squares in the West yeah, are I don't know, confusing. They are. So,
2: as are the ones on the East, the way East Coast Oh to yeah. Me, as are anything except for Florida and Texas. It the, basically. And Ohio and... Well, Michigan and Minnesota
0: Michigan. and Missouri.
2: Well, you know Missouri because you're from there, but yeah. I don't know if I would have.
0: Maybe I would have. Illinois.
2: Illinois. I think it's Illinois. Uh, April eighth, nineteen 1959, was a Wednesday. Mm -hmm. As many as 250 delegates to a conference of the AFL-CIO got food poisoning after eating dinner on board a train bound from Toledo to Washington. Toledo. I only kept it in there because Toledo is known for making everybody sick. (laughs) I'm from Toledo. Yes. One day before the press conference introducing the members of NASA... Uh, NASA Astronaut Group Mm 1, USAF test pilot Captain Halver M. Eckherin Jr., who had been one of the 32 astronaut finalists earlier in the year. You know, they're trying to pick who's going to go into space for the first time. He died in the crash of his Convair JF 1068 50 Delta Dart near Indian Springs in Nevada. So that lessened the pool by one.
0: Yeah, sure did.
2: And that's kind of when they picked John Glenn and all that. Then Thursday was April ninth. Comedian Lenny Bruce made his national television debut as a guest on the Steve Allen show. He's a big, yeah, famous comedian. I know who he is. And uh, that same day, the Boston Celtics beat the Minneapolis Lakers, yeah. one eighteen to one thirteen, to sweep the four-game NBA championship series and the first of the Celtics-Lakers title matches.
0: Now, why don't they pronounce it Celtics?
2: That's a great question. Because
0: that's how it's pro- that's how it's pronounced in.
2: You would say Celtics anywhere else, right? Yes. Celtic Woman is a a dance show that comes well, through. Ire- well, in Ireland. In Ireland, it's Celtic. Celtic. I don't know why it's Celtics.
0: Is it just because P- Americans are stupid? <laughs> it might be. I mean, the same it's... reason
2: we call Toledo, Toledo, yep. or Toledo.
0: And New Madrid instead of New Madrid. And, <coughs> uh, there's all kinds like that. Yeah. Uh, I can't think of any more. Yeah, others, there's, a there's, there's a
2: bunch of more like Latino ones. Latino mm-hmm. ones that. Brazil instead of Brazil. I don't
1: know
0: what that. Is that one? No, I don't
2: think. Um, okay, again, April 9th, the same day, actor George Reeves, who portrayed Superman on television, mm-hmm. was injured when the brakes failed on his Jaguar automobile and he crashed into a light pole near his home in Beverly Hills. Reeves suffered regular headaches after the accident and would die from a gunshot wound on June 16th. Jesus. Yeah, you know, is the, that Superman curse. Superman curse, curse yeah. yeah. Christopher Reeves. You know what happened to him. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's a bunch more. Dean Cain.
0: Did he? I don't Are know. Are you making that up now?
2: Well, he's... he's uh, I think he's a weirdo. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright died on that same day. He was 91 years old.
0: Wow. He lived a long time. Yeah.
2: American architect died in Phoenix three days after he had intestinal surgery. Looks like they must have accidentally dropped a junior mint in there.
0: Yeah, I guess they did. And
2: that's the only... Really when you're 94. 91.
0: Oh, when you're 91, though. Even 94 is still. different.
2: If you're 94, yeah, just let him die. 91, hurry up, have intestinal surgery.
0: Hopefully that wasn't cosmetic surgery, because yeah. it's just unreasonable. Yeah, it was like just to 91. make him, yeah, give him a six-pack. Yep.
2: Then when he's 91. Yep. <laughs> cosmetic, <laughs> intestinal surgery. And uh, they dropped a junior mint inside. Yep. April 10th, 1959 was a Friday. and 30- Can I tell
0: you my date, by the way? Do you know my date?
2: Yeah, I do know it. Okay. 34 people, mostly children, were killed by a bomb.
0: Holy shit.
2: The bomb was left over from World War II. Where? Uh, Fishermen had retrieved the 500-pound weapon from a sunken ship in Lingayen Gulf near Dagupan in the Philippines. Oh. And they were taking apart the device while
0: curious onlookers watched. And it blew up. Yep. Yikes. Poor kids. Yeah.
2: And also on April 10th, a sniper attempted to shoot Virginia governor J Lindsay Almond. Oh, outside the executive mansion in Richmond, Virginia. But the governor was unhurt and the whole would be assassin was never found. Oh, really? That according to the Oakland Tribune. Hmm. It could be someone we know.
0: You never know.
2: Yep. And that's the same day we have a birthday. The same day the kids blew up and the attempted murder by a sniper. We have a birthday. Our first birthday of this episode of American Timelines. Hit it, Matt Truman. Negro Truth. Amy. Amy
1: hates birthdays. Amy hates
2: birthdays. All right, famous uh, songwriter and musician born in Indianapolis. His name is Kenneth Edmonds, but you know him as a different name.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: His parents were Marvin and Barbara Edmonds. She was a production operator at a pharmaceutical plant. Uh, I don't know who Marvin was, but he's the fifth of six brothers, and he attended North Central High School in Indianapolis. Team colors are black and red, home of the Panthers. Notable alumni include Jared Fogle, that subway guy who lost weight and raped everybody. Yeah, it was a pedophile. As a shy youth, Edmonds wrote songs to express his emotions. When he was in eighth grade, his father died of lung cancer, leaving his mother to raise her sons alone. This guy wrote pretty much all of Belva Davis' songs, a lot of New Edition songs. Okay. Babyface.
0: Okay. I'm glad you didn't try to make me guess because I, was I was never would have guessed yeah. that.
2: He later met funk performer Bootsy Collins, who named him Babyface because of his youthful look. Okay. And also on the same day, might be twins Brian Setzer from Straight Cats was more. <laughs> I don't think they're twins. No. And now we have a famous death on that day, so I need Matt Truman to compose a, a death, death day death, song.
0: Death day song? And since
2: you love death, you'll probably like this one. Yeah. Leonard Shockley, 17 years old, became the last juvenile to be executed in the United States. Wow. He was only 16. When they he co-
0: executed juveniles. That's pretty hardcore. Well,
2: his mur- he, what he did was pretty bad. He was 16. He committed a murder by cutting the throat of a shopkeeper. Uh. He was put to death in the gas chamber at the Maryland State Penitentiary at 10.02 p.m. But if you look up kind of what he did, like it, like he just plunged a knife in this woman's throat and gouged it, you know. Yeah. But there's some weird things about it. Like his brother, his older brother who was in his 20s had just gotten out of jail mm-hmm. and was with him. But he was sitting in the car while he did this. Uh-huh. And there's, a little, there's like one time where he says, no, he was in there with me. So I wonder if his... Brother kind of put him up to it. But oh, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, so for nearly 40 years, he would he would be the last person to be executed for a crime committed by a minor. Uh, on February 4th, 1999, Sean Sellers would be put to death in Oklahoma for a 1985 murder mm. that was committed when he was 16, but he wasn't 16 anymore. So, mm-hmm. anyway, April 12th, 1959 was a Sunday, and the body of former Haitian presidential candidate. Clement Jumel, was hijacked from the funeral process- procession in oh Port-au-Prince. Oh, my God. It has been speculated that Haitian dictator Francois Duvier wanted to use the brain in a voodoo ceremony.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah. How about that? Holy shit. I wish I would
2: have looked up that more and talked more about that. Yeah, really. Uh, and on this date, uh, the myth for the Chinese word for crisis was perpetuated by John F. Kennedy. Have you ever heard of this? No. He said... On this date, he said, when written in Chinese, the word crisis is composed of two characters. One represents danger, and the other represents opportunity. That's <laughs> not true. No. It's a lie. And that's a terrible... Er, ah, uh, JFK.
0: Impersonation. Er,
2: ah, uh, I forgot to do that. ah. April 15th was a Wednesday, and four men hijacked a Cuban airliner to the U.S. They landed the plane at 8.55 a.m. in Miami, and that's the same day that Fidel Castro... Mm -hmm. Uh, arrived in Washington for an 11-day tour of the U.S. And the same day that U.S. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, Mm -hmm. you know what airport's named after him, right? Dulles. Dulles. He resigned after the metastasizing of his abdominal cancer. Uh, Choking back tears, President Dwight D. Eisenhower announced the news at a press conference in Augusta, Georgia. Mm. Also on April 15th, hundreds turned out in Oklahoma City to see whether Otis T. Carr would launch a flying saucer to fly 400 feet off the ground. Carr rescheduled the launch several times, but it never took place. I don't know why I kept that in there. I meant to delete that one because <laughs> stupid. Thursday, April 16th, rioters at the Montana State Prison in Deer Lodge took 16 guards and seven other people hostage. Mm. The disturbance broke out at 4.30 in the morning. Two hostages were released the next day. Oh, it just says 4:30, so I guess it could be in the afternoon. Yeah, two hostages were released the next day, according to the Oakland Tribune. Hmm. The riot started and was the longest, longest, and bloodiest riot at the facility. Facility. Uh, it was instigated by a pair of inmates, Jerry Miles and Lee Smart. Riot would claim the lives of three people total, wound several others, and maintain the facility under inmate control for 36 hours. It ended in the early hours of April 18th when a a brace of National Guard troops stormed the facility. Uh, Then in August of the same year, an earthquake structurally damaged cell block 2 leading to its destruction. So that prison was doomed. Yeah. Um, And then on April 18th, Fidel Castro appeared on Meet the Press and denied that Cuba would turn to communism. Later that day, Cuba turned to communism. (laughs) The Cuban premier met with U.S. Vice President Richard Nixon. And that's the same day that Alfred Steele,
1: mm-hmm.
2: chairman of the Pepsi-Cola company and husband of Joan Crawford, died. Christina Crawford would later claim, in an updated version of Mommy Dearest, that she believed that her mother murdered her stepfather.
0: Really? That,
2: according to the Albion Morning Star. Oh. According to a portrait of Joan, Joan Crawford's autobiography, Yeah. He, she found him on the floor that morning, and she quickly phoned the doctor, and she was in complete shock. She covered him in blankets and started yelling, get warm, get warm. Once the doctor arrived, he pronounced Steele dead of an instant heart attack.
0: Oh, yeah. So it didn't sound like she I don't had anything so. to do with it.
2: Don't you think she just wanted to maybe I just want to sell some books?
0: Probably. Get back at her, if she was abusive, especially. Maybe,
2: if she was abusive.
0: No, why are
2: coat hangers? That's right. On 20, 1959, was a Monday. And we have another birthday, Amy's favorite of all time. The one we, you know, we always, a lot of couples have like one get out of jail free for cheating on their husband or wife. And this is your celebrity one you're allowed to do. Oh. Hit it, Matt Truman.
1: Amy, Amy Hates birthday.
2: Yep. American film and television actor born in Burbank, California. Lead singer of his own band, the Kempsters, and also makes custom snow globes. Clint Howard was born.
0: <laughs> that's your one. I can cheat on you with Clint Howard. Clint
2: Howard is the only one you can cheat on me with. As that's long as disgusting. I can
0: watch, as long
1: as I can watch,
2: you know that's Ron Howard's younger brother.
1: Yes. Oh, yeah. He looks like he's his yeah. dad. <laughs> like, <know. laughs> he's,
2: could be the ugliest guy ever. But look up if you get a chance. Google his band. The the uh, what I say they're called the Kemptons? Kempsters. Sorry, the Kempsters. Uh. He puts on makeup and, like, sings and, like, is crazy. I didn't know he was in a band. Uh, it's terrible. <laughs> um, and that same day, we have another death. Morris K. Jessup, 59, so it might be Clint Howard reincarnated. Uh, he's an American mathematician, astronomer, and authority on UFOs. He was found dead in his car from carbon monoxide poisoning, an apparent suicide. Although some conspiracy theorists believe that he was murdered because of his UFO knowledge.
0: Sounds like a suicide to me.
2: Well, especially if you talk to his uh, family and you realize that in 1958 his wife left him. He traveled to New York City and his friends described him as being somewhat unstable. Then he returned to Florida, where, of course, that's where everyone goes to kill themselves. He was involved in a serious car accident and was slow to recover, apparently increasing his despondency. yeah. And he was found alongside a a roadside, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, dead, with a hose, run from the exhaust pipe in the rear window of the vehicle.
0: Yeah, that's totally...
2: Friends said he was extremely depressed and had discussed suicide for several months. So, yeah, I think...
0: Not really a shock.
2: The only reason they got into conspiracy theories was his UFO thing, and it surrounded the the Philadelphia experiment. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. So people thought he... He was aware, like somebody had oh. told him about the Philadelphia experiment. Yeah. what was the Philadelphia experiment? I don't,
0: I don't know a lot about it. Oh,
2: well, according to those, heard of it? A book, uh, Moore and Berlitz wrote a book, the Philadelphia experiment, Project Invisibility. Uh, it put forward the conspiracy theory that his death was connected to his knowledge of this, uh, and friends interviewed in the same book uh, thought the bizarre letters from Carl Meredith Allen may have initiated a decline in Jessup's mental state, uh, leading to his suicide. So Carl Allen is the one who apparently described the Philadelphia, Philadelphia Experiment as follows. Apparently a giant ship, a destroyer escort, was successfully made invisible, but the ship inex- inexplicably w- was teleported to Norfolk, Virginia for several minutes and then reappeared in the Philadelphia yard. The ship's crew was supposed to have suffered various side effects, including insanity, uh, <laughs> oh intangibility, and being frozen in place.
1: Uh, oh my
0: god! So I, f-
2: I think that's false.
0: Yes. I wonder what Snopes would say.
2: Yeah, we should look it up on Snopes. I had never heard of that. But mm. April twenty third was a Thursday. Uh, wait, was that all on four twenty? So maybe that's why four twenty became the weed day.
0: No, for t- that's because it's the co- the police code for but it weed. But it isn't really. Oh, it's code, not. I don't
2: think I think that's a myth. April 23rd was a Thursday. Okay. And the press secretary, secretary, how do do British people say secretary? Secretary. I can't say it. Anyway, press secretary for Ernesto de la Guardia, the president of Panama, Mm -hmm. charged that American actor John Wayne was financing an attempt by Roberto Arias to overthrow the government there. Oh. But Wayne dismissed the accusations as ridiculous and noted... Roberto never talked politics, (laughs) Pilgrim. And I never heard him say anything about overthrowing the Panamanian government.
0: I'm not talking for clapping. I'm not talking for clapping.
2: I'm not very good at John Wayne. Um, And that brings us to your thing. On April 25th, 1959, which was a Saturday, Amy's going to tell us about an uplifting, wonderful story, I'm sure.
0: Yes, and we're going to start. on the February 24th, but th- the April date is the main event, but we're going to go backtrack just a tad. To February 24th of that Ye- same year? Yes. <clears throat> so, on the morning of February 24th, Mac Charles Parker, okay. who was a 23-year-old African-American veteran, okay, he was awakened by Marshall Ham Slade and several deputies. Who, Marshall uh,
2: Ham Slade? Yeah,
0: well, you know, they're in the South, so.
2: So, like, Ham was like a nickname? Mm-hmm. Ham
0: and several deputies who alleged that he had raped a young white woman, June Walters, the night before. Parker was arrested for the February 23rd rape and kidnapping of June Walters, and she was a pregnant white woman, too, Mm -hmm. in uh, Pearl River County, Mississippi. So we're in Mississippi, yeah,
2: deep in the south.
0: Walters uh, reported to the police that the crime occurred. On a dirt logging road called Black Creek Ford Road off U.S. Route 11, which was about seven miles south of Lumber- Lumberton, Mississippi, where she and her child were waiting alone in a car while her husband Jimmy sought help for repairs. Oh, I was about so, to say
2: I'm not familiar with route that this area of the country at so, all. So, no, so specifics.
0: So, um, their car broke down. Their car broke down. The, the husband got out to go get gas.
2: Yeah, you have to just walk. That's what you have to do when you don't have cell phones or anything
1: else.
0: So, um, Parker, Mac, Charles Parker, vehemently denied having raped anyone. Okay. Um, He, at 23, was in many ways a typical young man his age. He had an unremarkable childhood, attended segregated schools, dropped out of high school, and did a two-year stint in the Army. He also had no criminal history. And friends would later say they never heard anything from him that indicated he might have pro- a propensity towards sexually assaulting someone. Yeah. He was noted for being reliable and a hard worker. And he, uh, Parker, who lived in Lumberton, was supporting his mother and two younger siblings, plus a sister and her young child. So he was
2: a, r- a really good
1: guy.
0: Yeah. Like many young adults then and now, Parker, along with his friends, like to go out after cashing their paychecks and have a few beers. Like many men his age, he was not immune to bragging and saying inappropriate things, nor was he totally aware of how his actions or careless braggadocio could affect or impact his life.
2: Bragging, saying crass things, and drinking beer after work? Sounds like this guy right here.
0: Well, that's because you have the privilege to be able to do that. That's true. Because you're not black in the 50s. You're right.
2: What I'm saying is, like, sounds like me. I can relate to this guy. So yeah, you're right. I have white privilege, and I apologize.
1: This
0: area in the late... Um, 50s was kind of a laid-back sort of life for most people. Uh, even though the Civil Rights Movement was beginning to take shape across the whole country, Poplarville, which <clears throat> was the little area that this occurred in, remained rather isolated from worldviews and events. It had a population of a couple thousand.
2: The 50s, you, you, you said, were laid-back for most people? No,
0: think? this I'm talking about this little area that this occurred in.
2: Oh, this area was laid-back. Okay, It was gotcha. like
0: a little... Yeah, it had a population of a couple thousand. Okay. Little had changed over the years. Um, Nearly half the population lived below the poverty level. Yeah. The residents rarely moved away and fewer moved in. Quiet country living where everyone seemed to migrate toward the center of the town on Sunday after church services was the way of life for most. So there was no (laughs) doubt that just about everyone knew everyone else. And – residents liked things as they were so children minded their manners adults addressed one another with informal titles and the blacks of the county knew where they were allowed what they were Ugh. allowed to do and when yeah. to keep silent so according to awful. yes according to reports published in New York New, the New Orleans Times Picayune and the Jackson Clarion Ledger
1: okay
0: parker and four friends norman malachy david alfred kurt underwood and tommy grant were returning to Lumberton from Poplarville. The five men had been to Slim's, an illegal bar which was operated under the protection of the Poplarville City Police.
2: Yeah, you know there's no good happening at Slim's.
0: It was located in the black section of Poplarville and was known for selling white lightning moonshine. Oh. As the five neared Lumberton, Parker and his four companions spotted a Dodge sedan broken down on the side of the road. Okay. Assuming the car was abandoned, they stopped. Parker got out and shone a flashlight into the car. Upon recognizing a white woman in the car, Parker returned to his brother's Chevy sedan and left. As they left the scene, Parker allegedly turned to his friend and said, why don't we stop and get some of that white stuff? Telling him he was crazy, the four men told Parker to take them home. According to local law enforcement officials, before the woman's husband could return to the disabled car, according to her, Parker returned, kidnapped her and her four-year-old daughter, Debbie, at gunpoint, and took them to Black Creek Ford Road where he raped her. Uh, Walters was clear that a black man had raped her, but she was unable to state with certainty that Parker had been the assailant. Her description of a middle-aged man was who was five ten and one hundred and sixty to one hundred and seventy pounds did not fit the young Parker, who weighed more than two hundred pounds. Okay. Walters picked Parker out of a lineup, but she later recanted this identification.
1: Huh.
0: So Kurt Underwood, Parker's brother-in-law, who was there that night, disputed the, this version of events. Of okay. events. Um. <clears throat> so there was an intensive manhunt. Then Lumberton police were informed by David Alfred's father, who was a local Baptist minister, yeah. that Parker was the one they were looking for. So they arrested him.
2: How did he know, I wonder?
0: <laughs> I uh, I don't know. I, it, it, it's That part is kind of it, confusing. Iffy. Um, so he was arrested about 10 a.m. at his home. Um, he was beaten by Slade and his deputies. To the horror of his mother, Mrs. Eliza Parker, his screams could be heard several houses away. Oh, he vehemently denied having raped anyone.
2: And that doesn't matter. To the with those yeah.
0: bastards. There was a check of tire tracks left by the perpetrator's car that indicated they were similar to those of Parker's Chevrolet, <clears throat> excuse me, but a positive identification could not be made. A check of fingerprints failed to implicate Parker. Soon after his arrest and for his own protection, Lumberton police had the Mississippi Highway Patrol transfer Parker to the Hines County Jail in Jackson. So um, when he went to that jail, they gave him a bunch of lie detector tests.
1: Yeah.
2: Which are not conclusive or reliable. But
0: they either either were proven inconclusive or he passed them. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, In addition, no handgun was ever found by police, nor was one ever connected to Mac Charles Parker. Then on April 13th, he was indicted by a Pearl River County grand jury on one count of rape and two counts of kidnapping. Two days later, he was returned to Pearl River County to appear before Judge Seab Dale Sr. on April 17th. Being represented by attorney and civil rights activist R. Jess Brown of Vicksburg, Parker pleaded not guilty to each charge. Yep. Judge Dale set the trial date for April 27th, and Parker was returned to his cell. So um, then... According to the FBI reports on the case, sometime around 12.15 a.m. on April 25th, a vigilante mob of 8 to 10 hooded and masked men wearing gloves entered the courthouse. Supposedly, they were led in to the locked jail area by a deputy sheriff named Jewel Alford, who was with them. As Alford unlocked the door, 8 to 10 from the mob entered Parker's cell. He begged for help from the other prisoners, but the mob threatened them with guns. So a life and death struggle soon, Ensued as Parker tried to escape and he was beaten with clubs by the mob. As the mob dragged Parker out of the courthouse and down the concrete steps, he was bleeding profusely. Mm-hmm. He pleaded to be able to walk instead of being dragged. Blood spurted from his wounds, leaving bloody handprints and pools of blood along the route out okay. of the courthouse. Jesus. So then they drove to, <clears> then <throat> they had two cars waiting outside for their escape. He, they stuffed Parker into the backseat of one of the two cars and sped west towards Bugaloosa, Louisiana on Mississippi Highway 26. Never heard of that. The car with Parker inside continued on west until it reached the border to Mississippi, Louisiana at the Pearl River Bridge, which was like 20 miles west of Poplarville. So according to the FBI, the mob with Parker in the car drove into Louisiana where they waited to make sure the road was traffic free. So then they get him out to the bridge, drive out to the center of the bridge. They get him out of the car, shoot him twice in the chest. He dies within seconds. The original plan had been to castrate him, of course, yeah, and God. hang him from the superstructure of the Pearl River Bridge. However, now that he was dead, they decided to abandon that because they just didn't want to be discovered setting it all Those up. fucking assholes. So they weight his body down with logging chains, which were produced from the trunk of one of the cars. Jeez. Once the chains were secured around it, it was tossed over the concrete railing of the bridge into the r- rain-swollen waters of the Pearl River. Okay, so
2: Don't even give a shit if it's the right guy or not. I know. Like, what if there really is the, the real guy and he's out there, you know, like.
0: Right. Upon learning of the events in the early morning hours of April 25th, Pearl River County Sheriff Osborne Moody informed Mississippi Highway Patrol, who then urged him to contact the FBI. So then he gets a John Doe warrant for the kidnapping of Mac Charles Parker. And then on May 4th, Parker's bloated and decomposing body was found floating in the waters uh, of the Pearl River, two and a half miles south of the bridge. Almost immediately, 60, 60 agents from the FBI descended upon the town of Poplarville. So they, in the two weeks that followed his death, they questioned hundreds of potential witnesses and suspects, several local Poplarville men, Jewel Alford, Christopher Columbus, Crip, Rayer, L.C. Davis, Preacher James Florin, Lee, and his son James Florin, Jeff Lee, All of Herman people. Schultz, Arthur Smith, and J.P. Walker, a former Pearl River County Sheriff's deputy, yeah, who would be elected sheriff of Pearl River County in 63, they quickly became the focus of the FBI's probe into the abduction and death of Parker. And then um, in, there was a three-hour interrogation session, and they browbeat Crip Rayer. He finally admitted th- that his red and white 1956 Oldsmobile 88 had been used by the mob, yeah. but denied having anything to do with the abduction or killing. Then on May 13th, under intensive pressure from FBI agents, Arthur Smith confirmed the role of each of the participants and supplied the names of Walker, Preacher Lee, Elsie Davis, and the names of the others who were in the two cars. And he told the agents that Lee, Rayer, Davis, and Walker were the lead car that carried Parker from the jail. Um, But the judge and the prosecutor in the case would not cooperate with the FBI investigation. And they refused to hand over FBI evidence to the grand jury, said it was hearsay, even though several of the mob members had confessed to the lynching. Judge Dale, who praised Theodore Bilbo's racial beliefs and was a member of the White Citizens Council, refused to indict the suspects. He encouraged the grand jury to have the backbone to stand against in tyranny stating, you are now engaged in battle for our laws and courts for the preservation of our freedom and our way of life. He urged them to keep their mouths shut. Dale also previously refused before the lynching. Um, Sheriff Moody's request to move Parker outside the county or have members of Mississippi National Guard protect him. So then the grand jury refuses to indict the lynchers. So a federal grand jury in Biloxi takes the case over. Uh Uh-huh. They failed to indict some of the mob by a single vote. Before that trial, Dale went to meet the um, judge, Sidney Mize, and managed to convince him to narrow the federal kidnapping statute. So then before the last grand jury convened, Poplarville Mayor Pat Hyde stated that you couldn't convict the guilty parties if you had sound film of the lynching. And an unnamed Poplarville businessman rhetorically asked why the FBI even bothered to investigate since no jury would convict the killers. So then on May 11th, there's this um, black mag, uh, newspaper, I guess, or popular, popular black newspaper in Chicago called the Chicago Defender. Okay. And they do an article on this, and it, and it circulates throughout the South. And um, there's an interview in it with this anon- anonymous white male from Poplarville saying he had personal knowledge that the charges against Parker were made up. He says that the alleged victim, June Walters, was in fact having an affair with a local white man, and oh. she went with him while her husband Jimmy was gone to get help to fix the car. Oh. Then when her absence was discovered before she returned, she made up a rape and kidnapping oh, story to shield her infidelity. And w- and and the guy probably re- really did stop and see the woman in the car and then get back in his car and drive away. Yeah that really did that part really did that happen happened and it was just and handy so she remembered and she was probably like oh i'll just say that he yeah, came back and me. yeah because i'll win
2: because yeah ugh. so in june
0: 1959 attempts were made to enact an anti-lynching bill which were stalled as many others by southern democrat block um so then there was a book called blood justice the lynching of mac charles parker yeah. in, um in this the author howard Smead, believes that parker was most likely not innocent but said he was not 100% sure. Smead believes that Parker should have been given a fair trial and states that he never had a chance to prove his innocence. <laughs> Smead writes that the local black community, many of whom knew Parker, were divided in opinion of his guilt. Many who held him at the time of their crime to be guilty never wavered in their view after Bullshit. that. I know. So, uh, let me see. It's there, they did reopen it. Uh-huh. The, uh, in 2009, the FBI announced they were reopening the Mac Charles Parker case. Um, but there has not been any other updates.
2: Because all the people that killed him are probably dead at this point. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's the story, Larry.
2: But it's like, you know, reminds me of uh, the Emmett Till thing where she, I know. that bitch was finally, she died. So she's now riding yes. in hell. But they never, they were going to reopen it. And then, and it, then she <clears> died. It, she, yeah. Well, no, they dismissed it before she died.
0: Oh, like, God. Yeah.
2: They said, oh, we're not going to do it. Yeah. Uh, Well, let's just finish April real quick before we take a quick break. Yes. Uh, Because right at the day after your thing started on April 25th, whichever happened, was that when he was killed? Yes. Uh, We'll cleanse our palate with a little bit of sports. A funny, well, not a funny thing, but kind of funny. It was Sunday, April 26th. 1959, Reds pitcher Willie Schmidt became the first Major League Baseball player to be hit by a pitch twice in the same inning in a game against the Milwaukee Braves, once by Lou Burdett and once by Bob Rush. Mm. Later, he was struck by a line drive hit by Johnny Logan. So the guy got hit with the ball three times in one game. Only two other major leaguers have repeated the result, Frank Thomas of the Mets in 1962 and Brady Anderson in 1999. Got hit by two pitches in the same inning. That's crazy. Usually, if you get hit by a pitch, you charge the mound, bruh.
0: Oh, really? Knock that motherfucker out. Oh, I don't know about that.
2: That's what I do. You don't hit me if you hit me with a pitch. You're getting taken out, bruh.
0: You know, Wrestling that's probably style. why you don't play baseball.
2: Oh, I'll give it. A, I did in high school. I played one year, my senior year. I couldn't hit or catch, but they put me in a pinch run sometimes. My God, because I could run, and they. I really only really made the team because I was funny. Right. They wanted a funny guy in the dugout Anyway, then we'll start May in a second But let's take a quick break And listen to these advertisements And I can get a fresh beer
1: Hey nerds, check out the Gruff and Loud show
2: on YouTube You got a kid That's what you think I forgot to tell you Remember that time you banged Shannon Doherty You got her pregnant You got her pregnant bro Kid's 26 now well, I'm glad. The kid's probably doing alright. No, he's not. He needs you. He needs a father. Well, I I was a donor, not a father. No. He needs a real father to step up and teach him how to fish.
1: Well, and if you I... can
2: teach him how to fish, you will have successfully raised him. <laughs> you have 30 minutes. Here he is!
1: <laughs> <laughs> <No>!
2: <laughs> teach him how to fish! 30 minutes! Oh, uh, minnows work better than worms. Oh, you did it. Hooray. You have successfully fathered Shannon Doherty's child. Congratulations. You've been unlocked.
1: Bing, 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 bing.
2: Confetti, streamers, fireworks. It's <laughs> What's happening? What are we talking about?
0: Check out the Gruff and Loud show on YouTube.
2: Okay. We're back. Thank you for listening to that. Do, do check out the Gruff and Loud show. It's the greatest YouTube series of all time. Oh, my God. It's so riveting. It's such top-notch material. Holy shit. Great content for the interwebs. May 1st, 1959 was a Friday. And uh, this one you'll be really into, AIM, because Gene Horny, H-O-E-R-N-I, Horny. Gene Horny. Filed a patent application for the planar process under the name Method of Protecting Exposed PN Junctions at the Surface of Silicon Transistors by Oxide Masking Technique. Thank God. What? This process, which protected a transistor from contamination, made mass production of the transistors feasible, and has been called, after the invention of the junction transistor, the most important invention of microelectronics. Thank God.
0: Okay. Well, after all,
2: this is a microelectronics podcast. That's true. And on May 2nd, 1959, which was a Saturday, four white men <coughs> in Tallahassee, Florida, kidnapped and raped a black woman, Betty Jean Owens, near the campus of Florida yes. A&M University, beginning a case that attracted nationwide attention. And so this is just kind of exactly the gist of it. Well, like, it is. At the same time, white men are... Yes, the people that do this—they will. Well, if you look at a black, they will. If you look at history, white t- people
0: yeah. are the violent ones. They are white people are always the violent and ones, and then
2: they accuse Everybody everyone else, else of doing what they do of and being want savages, to yeah, thugs. They're the savages, and the yes, thugs. you know it's always the way. Yep, not that there's not some bad people that are you know uh, of color and stuff, but it's generally in this time they're the ones doing it and accusing others. Sound familiar?
0: Yep, sure does.
2: Friggin' Trump. Yep. You know, it's the same thing. Anyway, uh, but this made national attention. uh, But what happened was William Collinsworth, Ollie Stoudemeyer, Patrick Scarborough, and David Beagles apparently set out together to find a woman to sexually assault. They approached a car at Jake Gaither Park armed with shotguns and switchblades, and Patrick Scarborough pressed his shotgun against the African-American driver's nose and ordered the occupants out of the car. Four African-Americans stepped out of the car, two men and two women. All four people in the car were students at Florida A&M, and Scarborough forced the two black men to kneel on the ground, and David Beagles held the two black women at knife point. Scarborough ordered the black men, Richard Brown and Thomas Butterfield, to leave, and they slowly drove away. This according to uh, Danielle McGuire's book, At the End of the Street. Black Women, Rape, and Resistance, A New History of the Civil Rights Movement, From Rosa Parks to the Rise of Black Power. That's a long yeah, uh, title. Yeah, it's a long title. Uh, but the two black women left at the hands of the four white men were Edna Richardson and Betty Jean Owens. Edna Richardson broke free of the men and ran into a nearby park, leaving Betty Jean Owens alone with oh, her no. attackers. Yep. Beagles promised to release her only if she did what they wanted her to do. That, according to... it, was. It was like all of us had been raped. Sexual violence, community mobilization, and the African-American freedom struggle, also by Danielle McGuire in the Journal of American History. They drove her to the edge of town, and subsequently raped her seven times. Edna Richardson and the other two male students were able to make it back to their car and went to the local police station to report what had happened to them. The officer on duty that night happened to be a 19-year-old intern, Joseph D. Cook, Jr., And to the surprise of many people, he called for backup and searched for Owens. That was surprising and unbelievable that that happened. And if it wasn't him, they probably wouldn't have cared. Yeah. Sadly. The officer spotted the assailant's car, and a chase ensued. Eventually, the men pulled their car over, and the muffled screams of Owens could be heard from the car. She was bound and gagged on the backseat floorboard. Oh. Again, according to Danielle McGuire's.
0: You know they were going to kill her. Oh, of course. Yeah.
2: The four men were then arrested and taken to jail. If they hadn't found her, yeah, she'd be dead. Uh, The four men did not take their arrest seriously, and they joked with each other on the way to jail. All four men confessed in writing to have abducted Owens at gunpoint and raping her because they thought, well, who cares? Who cares? I'm not going to get in trouble for this. Ultimately, an all-white jury convicted the four men. Good. And on June 22nd, (laughs) Judge W. May Walker, Sentenced them to life in prison.
0: Really? Yeah. Good. That's that's justice. like a turning point. Like it's that's justice.
2: Yeah, it's amazing that. Yeah. I mean, justice would be shooting them in the balls. Yeah. Uh, uh, but that's unheard of in this time. Period. I know. But it's 1959. We're starting to get to the civil rights movement. Like it's at least some little bit of hope, mm-hmm. even though this was an awful story. At least there's some justice for once. Isn't that sad that that's yes. surprising? You know, that it's surprising that, that, that they. But look, they they just laughed and joked about it and completely confessed because they thought there'd be no, Re- no
0: consequences. Repercussions, yep.
2: Yep. Uh, that same day, Jerry Unser Jr. was fatally injured while practicing for the Indianapolis 500. His car struck a retaining wall at 133 miles an hour and burst into oh flame. My God. And he died 15 days later after. Oh, my God. Uh, from his burns.
0: He lived for 15 yeah, days? Yeah,
2: suffering with burns. Wouldn't that be awful? it would be like, kill me. Uh, but because of this, Indy racing officials required all drivers mm-hmm. to wear fire-resistant suits in practice and in competition from then on. I guess so. Uh, May 4th, 1959 was a Monday, and the first-ever Grammy Awards were bestowed by the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences in a ceremony held at the Beverly Hilton Hotel in Beverly Hills. The music from Peter Gunn by Henry Mancini was Album of the Year. Doenico Madugno's Valere was Song of the Year. The Champs' Tequila won the award for Best Rhythm and Blues Performance. Oh. And do you know what? Where, how they get the name Grammy? No. I never knew this. I feel stupid for not knowing this. It's an abbreviation for the Gramophone Award. Oh. So dumb. If I would have known that when I was younger, I would never get Grammys and mixed Emmys up. mixed up and Oscars and all that. Uh. The Gramophone Award, you dumbass, Joe. Uh, anyway, it's interesting to know that Tequila won the mm-hmm. fir- one of the first Grammy, the first first Grammy won by Tequila. Yep, Pee Wee Herman. Okay, on a day uh, more civil rights news. When I come across a uh, an important person in uh, the civil rights movement. You know, we only hear about Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. Yeah, I like to bring them up, especially if they hit close to home. And we're here in Union County, North Carolina, Waxhaw. Uh, so I'm going to talk about a man named Robert F. Williams, uh, who is from Monroe, North Carolina, where I love to drink beer. Mm-hmm. There's delicious beers there. On a day in which a white man was exonerated from charges of a rape of a black woman and a black man convicted of rape of a white woman, mm-hmm. Robert Williams of the NAACP declared in Monroe, North Carolina, we must meet violence with violence. According to NCPD.org, Robert F. Williams was an American militant civil rights leader who served as the president of the Monroe, North Carolina chapter of the NAACP. In the 1950s and early 60s, Williams identified as a black nationalist and advocated for armed self-defense and the struggle for civil
1: rights. Mm-hmm.
2: Although this put him at odds with some of his contemporaries, such as MLK Jr., his stance allied him with other black activists who advocated for this method of active and at times violent resistance, including Ida B. Wells, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Robert Moton. He is also known for his publication Negroes with Guns, published in 1962. Uh, and his, his actions, thinking, and writing on the subject of armed resistance were revolutionary and anticipated... Uh, and contributed to the black power movement that grew in the late 1960s. So he was born in Monroe, North Carolina in 1925, the Emma Carter and John L. Williams. He, uh, his dad worked for the railroads. Growing up, his grandparents practiced armed self-defense, and then he received his first gun as a young boy. Now, living in this area, mm-hmm. people love guns down right. there. Like It's yeah. a gun thing, so it's not... I'm not a big advocate for violence <laughs> with guns and everything, but everybody's got a gun. <laughs> and if there's any kind of trouble in civil rights, there's, you bet the KKK has got guns. Yeah. Uh, so he he would need it. Yeah. When he was about eleven years old, he witnessed the violent beating of a black woman on the street in Monroe, North Carolina, by a policeman named Jesse Helms Senior. And well, Helms Helms beat the woman. I bring up that name because his descendants are still here. Like, yeah, our bank. There, I just walked out of our bank today. And Jesse Helms is like. One of the main people in the bank here, yeah. Uh, So it's they're still around here. It's like locals, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Helms Senior was the father of future U.S. Senator Jesse Helms Junior. But there's a yeah, one of these Helms.
0: And he was beating a black woman in the street. Yeah, his father was Jesus.
2: Along with many other black Southerners who could migrate, who would migrate from the South in search of jobs and a better of life, Williams moved north during World War II. He lived in Detroit for a time, witnessing the labor and racial unrest there. He was drafted in the in the war effort in 1944. And spent a year in the Marines uh, before the war ended. Mm-hmm. Following the war, he returned home to Monroe and he married Mabel Ola Robinson, a civil rights activist. And the couple had three children. In 1955, there, he's probably got you know relatives that still live around. Could here. be. He joined the Monroe branch of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, becoming the branch's president the following year aware of the increasing threat to activists and black citizens he obtained a charter for a local chapter of the national rifle association Mm. from there he formed the black guard bringing black military veterans into the group and the guard received training and weapons from williams to help protect and defend monroe's black population yeah williams taught his wife mabel to shoot but in general black women were not taught how to shoot despite their insistence during that time the group had had open armed conflict with the kkk During the 50s and 60s, Williams and other major civil rights advocates such as Bayard Rustin, who I talked about in a previous podcast, MLK Jr., and A.J. Musty, I don't know, Uh, they debated civil disobedience and armed self-defense. Williams claimed that that while nonviolence was powerful, its triumph depended on the adversary. King saw the advantage of armed self-defense, but argued nonviolence demanded greater self-control and courage. In the late 50s, Williams' position in the NAACP was suspended for his advocacy of violence. Mm. But he also butted heads with King on issues of leadership tactics. So in May 1961, uh, Williams sent King a telegram, insisting King ride with the Freedom Riders and physically participate with fellow protesters. In August of the same year, the Freedom Riders passed through Monroe, determined to demonstrate the effectiveness of civil disobedience and challenge segregation laws. While hostile white observers gathering or with hostile white observers gathering, the riders called for the aid of the black guard. Two weeks into their protest in Monroe, a mob of white supremacists attacked the riders and caused violence in the local neighborhood. during the fighting, a white married couple drove into the chaos. Williams rescued the white couple and let let them stay in his house and then white police. Authorities misrepresented the rescue and charged Williams and others with
0: false claims. I knew kidnap. that was going to happen. You know it, yeah. The minute he would help a white person.
2: Despite the fact the couple didn't report at any kind of abduction after they left his house. So then he was facing a kidnapping charge and possible Yeah, violence. how did I know? How yeah. did he fucking know? Yep. Williams and his family left Monroe and the, co- and the country for exile, first traveling to Cuba, seeking safety from the Klan. Williams didn't stop his activism during his stay in Cuba, though. He created and narrated "Radio Free Dixie," which aired in the U.S. and Canada, a show that included jazz, blues, and commentary on the American government. He also—that's when he also wrote uh, "Negro with Guns" and published a pamphlet, mm-hmm. "The Crusader." Uh, five years later, he traveled through Asia and Africa, speaking out against racism, colonialism, and the Vietnam War. And then it, they returned to Michigan in 1969, where Robert Williams was immediately arrested and extradited to North Carolina face a kidnapping charge. But the case was finally tried in 1975, mm-hmm. and Williams was acquitted when the state of North Carolina dropped the charges against him. So following his return to the U.S., uh, he didn't take up leadership in the Black Power Movement, despite the movement's promotion of armed self-defense. And then he passed away in Michigan on October 15, 1996, from lymphoma. Mm. Um, but yeah, so he was attacked. They His... Neighborhoods were attacked by the KKK all the time, so of course you're going to take up, yeah, with guns. You know? Right. So, yeah, I'm often surprised at the at how Martin Luther King and others remain nonviolent. We're, we're so
0: restrained. How did? How could you possibly? It's in it's the face really of a, it, a big. Feat, it's so much injustice. Know? Yeah. Yeah, it's really amazing. So because it makes you so
1: angry. It
2: makes you so upset, you can't. There's nothing you can do about it, mm-hmm. and it's like, yeah. At the same time, you know, it's like we're living with the repercussions of all of that. You know, and mm-hmm. all of the, it's all just still ingrained so much in society still. It's just so awful what a number they've done on, yep. on the world, racism and racists. Uh, uh, we'll jump to May 7th, 1959, which, no, I'm not going to skip that. Okay. No, no, yeah, May 7th, 1959, it was a Thursday. Two burglars broke into the apartment of socialite Mary G. Roebling. She was like the head of a bank at the Hotel Hildebrandt in Trenton, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. They loaded nearly $1 million worth of gems and furs into a cardboard box, rode down the hotel elevator for their getaway, where New York City police were waiting for them. Oh, boom. The police have been following the pair and their driver since February 2nd after being tipped off. That's according to the Oakland Tribune. Okay. May 8th, the first Little Caesars Pizza restaurant was opened. Your favorite. Mike Illich and his wife, Marion, began the chain with a store in Garden City, Michigan. Oh. And right nearby there was a city called Northville, Michigan, where that same day that the first Little Caesars opened, an F-84 jet fighter crashed into the backyard in a Northville, Michigan (laughs) home, injuring two children, catching them on fire. After the pilot had ejected, Jesus Christ! This, is according to pocketsites.com, training jet crash night. Uh, the training jet crash crash at the home of Ms. Ada Rowe in her vegetable garden. Uh, it was a military jet, and the pilot was preparing yeah. his approach to the Detroit Metro Airport Airport when he experienced a frozen stick and he lost all hydraulics. The pilot was forced to eject and helplessly watch as the plane turned and headed back toward the downtown business district when it suddenly shot up vertically and then plunged straight down and crashed. And a young girl was saved by her brother, who was a scout, and Mm. his training saved his sister's life. Oh. Yeah. And on May 12th, uh, 1959, Capital Airlines Flight 75, a turboprop flying from New York to Atlanta, disintegrated at an altitude of 5,000 feet. Whoa. After encountering severe turbulence, crashing near Chase, Maryland at 4.16 p.m., killing all 31 people on board. Less than an hour earlier, two of the 44 people on Capital Airlines Flight 983 from Buffalo to Atlanta were killed when that plane slid down a 200-feet embankment after skidding off the runway during a stop in Charleston, West Virginia. The pair of disasters marked the first time that two planes from the same airline had crashed on the same day. Man. And that's the same day that hours after his divorce from Debbie Reynolds became final, Eddie Fisher married... Elizabeth Taylor in Las Vegas. Yep. Yes. And on May fourteenth, nineteen fifty nine, U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower attended the groundbreaking for the Lincoln Center in New York City, okay. which was witnessed by a crowd of twelve thousand. Lincoln Center is now around.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then on May nineteenth, we got a May birthday. Hit a Matt Truman ego trip. Amy, Amy Okay, this guy, I might be able to convince you. Might be able to convince me to sleep with this guy too, babe. Mm-hmm. He's an American actor, mm-hmm. born in New York City. His mother, Rosina, was a typist and house cleaner, while his father was a bookbinder, who was born in New York and raised in Paris. When Pincho was two and a half, his family moved Bronson, to South Pasadena, Pinchot. California. Bronson Pincho. He graduated. He's a genius. He graduated at the top of his class from South Pasadena High School. Mm-hmm. Team colors black and orange. Home the Tigers. Notable alumni include Allison Brie and Hilary Swank, Went to the same school as Bronson Pinchot. Mm-hmm. He earned a full scholarship to Yale University. Um, after graduation, the casting dis- director discovered him, which led to his film debut, and you know what his, his debut was in? Mm. Risky Business. Oh. And I've mentioned this probably before on a podcast episode, but I have a six degrees of separation connection to both perfect strangers. Oh. I was in a play with one. I I was in the same play. One guy in this play in Chicago had been in a play with Bronson Pinchot. Mm -hmm. And the other guy had been in a play with Mark Lynn Baker, who plays Cousin Larry. So I (coughs) am just one step away from both Perfect Strangers. And I asked them both. I was like, hey, what are they like? Are they nice people? One was a dick and one was a nice guy. You want to guess which one's the dick?
0: Bronson Pincho. Yep. Yep. Bronson
2: Pinjo's an asshole, allegedly, according to a guy who was in play with him. Yeah. And Marklin Baker is pleasant. So there you go, Marklin Baker. Congratulations on not being a dick.
0: All right. We got a lot more or nope. what? A couple okay. more. Just a couple more things. All right.
2: Uh, May 23rd, 1959, a two and a half year old boy in Hazelwood, Missouri. You know where Hazelwood, yeah, Missouri is? Yeah. That's How close a, to where you were? Yeah. Well, maybe you were around for this because you were alive in the 50s. Uh, A a two-and-a-half-year-old boy was attacked and killed by a pack of at least five dogs. Yikes. Six weeks later in Novinger, Missouri. You know where that is? No. On July 3rd, another two-year-old boy would be killed by dogs. What, is Missouri the home of killing boys by dogs? I guess it is. May 26, 1959 was a Tuesday. Harvey Haddix of the Pittsburgh Pirates did what no other baseball player had ever accomplished by pitching a perfect game. No hits, no runs, no errors for 12 innings in Milwaukee. But Milwaukee Braves pitcher Lou Burdett was also hurling a shutout, and the score remained 0-0 going into the 13th inning. And then Felix Mantia reached first base, and the Braves went on to win 1-0. Haddocks, who almost sat out the game because recovering from the flu, said later he knew he was pitching a no-hitter but didn't realize he had a perfect game going mm. until that moment. Also, in fiction... May 26, 1959, it's Sally Brown's birthday. Charlie Brown's little sister. Oh. Boom. Okay. So she's 60-something. Yeah. And then on May twenty eighth, 1959, Thursday, and sad news Amy will hate, two female monkeys became the first animals launched by NASA into outer space and returned safely to Earth.
0: I don't care for that.
2: Yeah. They were, they were safe. That's I'm sure. True. They were unharmed. They were
0: probably scared out of their minds. Yeah, they
2: probably drove them nuts. Yep. Uh, and then on May 30th, which is a Saturday, Louisiana Governor Earl K. Long voluntarily entered a mental hospital in Texas and spent the next four weeks fighting efforts to have him committed.
1: Mm-hmm. He
2: was known as Uncle Earl. He connected with voters through his folksy demeanor and a colorful oratory. And he departed from other Southern politicians of his time in Louisiana by promoting a progressive agenda, expanding school lunch programs, teacher pay, public work projects, and minority voting rights in
0: Louisiana. That would be great. It'd be great to have a little bit of. But they had him committed
2: anywhere. because of, basically, probably because yeah. of that. Yeah. He, his sometimes erratic behavior, including a liaison with a New Orleans stripper, Blaze Star, did not affect his electoral success. People still voted for him anyway.
0: Well, oh, I think that's the um, subject of that. Book. What book? Uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, or something. Oh, is it about him? I think.
2: Well, he was he was well known for his eccentric behavior, leading some to suspect that he had bipolar disorder. In his last term in office, his his wife, Blanche Revere Long, and others attempted to remove him on the grounds of mental instability. For a time, Long was confined to the Southeast Louisiana Hospital in Mandeville, but his legal advisor Joseph A. Sims was said to have rescued Long from the institution. Hmm. Long was never formally diagnosed with any mental disorder, and commentators have speculated that political opposition may have led Mm -hmm. the effort to prove him mentally incompetent, including his wife, who resented his connection with the stripper, Star. Right. And then he had a severe heart attack in 1951, and in later years he was alleged to have suffered strokes, resulting in further mental impairment. And some have speculated that he may have suffered from dementia in his last days. And so I guess you would think anybody who's who's up for civil rights in Louisiana in the nineteen fifties I know. probably assume they're nuts, but it's the way they should be. And that's all we got. That's all she wrote.
0: All right, baby. What so else?
2: that's good midnight in the garden are good I don't know. Is, did guy? you
0: say it was Savannah?
2: It's Louisiana.
0: Oh no, then I'm wrong. Oh. I'm totally wrong. Okay. There's something though. I think there's a movie called Blaze, maybe?
2: Called Blaze?
0: Maybe. I don't know.
2: About Earl K. Long?
0: You'll have to look and see. I'll have to
2: see if there's a movie about Earl K. Long. Movie about Earl K. Long. Blaze! Yeah! Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. I knew there was something. Blaze from
2: 1989 stars Paul Newman as Governor Earl Long. Yeah. Shit, I never heard of that. Now I want to watch it. You saw it?
0: uh, Yeah, but it. I don't
2: remember. Did you see it on a date with another man? No. Back in
0: 1989? No, no. I wasn't dating yet in 1989. You weren't? Could you dunk a basketball in 1989? I don't think so. No, I don't think that's ever happened. All right. It's time to get out of here, Chuck Berry.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah, Chuck Berry, get out of the bathroom. Get the fuck out. Thanks for continuing to listen to our podcast, ladies and gentlemen. We only have... um, 150,000 episodes to go. No Four episodes if we're going to just finish up the 50s. What? Only four episodes left. Oh, the that's 50s. true. Yeah. And then we're going to switch it up. And yeah. Talk about. We're going to make turn this into a Pointer Sisters podcast. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going just talk about the Neutron Dance the whole time. Thanks for listening. Neutron Dance. Love you. I love you. band of all time by their music.